You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Look, folks, I know you're saving up for that getaway to Spain, but your friends and family are going to think you're a total loser if you don't come up with at least a few gifts for the holidays. Hey, hey, enough with the sleigh bells. This year, maximize your gift giving and holiday spending by supporting small businesses banging it out in the trenches. Entering Enormo at checkout gets you discounts at bonfirecoffee.com and peterwgilroy.com. And entering EnormaCast gets you a deal at belayspecs.com. And what's more, you'll be helping out a business so small, it's just a 5 foot 6 inch, 140 pound guy sitting at his desk in his living room who may or may not be wearing pants. So happy holidays. And this year, don't be that dirtbag that only leaves rumpled sheets and a ring in your parents' bathtub. Cue the bells. Well, folks, the specter of the holidays is upon us. And whether you celebrate Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Festivus, or the birth of little baby Jesus, Black Diamond presents gifts for the send for all your gift-giving needs. Now, I know that almost nobody is sending anything but a holiday hangover on December 26th. But Black Diamond can help you give your friends, family, and even grandma the right tools to sit next to that yuletide log and dream of sending their big adventure in the new year. And let me tell you, there's nothing like a shiny bit of kit from BD to put a wistful look on your snoring grandma's face as she dreams of hand jams, perfect sticks, and knee-deep powder in the coming decade. So give the gift of supporting the EnormaCast this holiday season by going to blackdiamondequipment.com to find gear and apparel for rock climbing, ice climbing, skiing, and everything up to, but not including, Yule Logs. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big house. place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold What's it out. I'll see. We really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather. Bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment. With support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the EnormaCast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is, heck, it is December 17th, 2019, and this is episode 189 of the EnormaCast. Oh, it's like noon, by the way, here in Colorado. Anyway, this is episode 189 of the EnormaCast, a conversation with Australian climber and developer Lee Kujis. Although it's spelled like it should be pronounced, at least around these parts, as Kujis which I would suggest becomes Lee's North and South American alias. First Australian guest on the EnormaCast, people. I have quite a few listeners in Australia, so hopefully you guys will be stoked. And I ask Lee to do the very impossible task of representing the entire continent, not including the rest of Oceania, and the entire Australian climate community. And heck, why don't we just throw the New Zealanders in there as well? 
Ooh, they hate that. Anyway, but yeah, we're, we're, we're just going to have Lee talk about the entire place and be our sole representative on the Enormous Cast of Australia, which is kind of what we do in the, in the interview. We talk a bit about Lee's background, but we also talk about all sorts of Australian stuff, like carrot bolts, like Mount Arapiles, like the fact that the Grampians has had this horrible access issue confronting it, and so much more. Repelling upside down gets mentioned, actually, as well. Plus, as I will, as I do... As I often do, I start recounting my own past in Australia because my trip to Australia in the mid early mid nineties was uh, was kind of the seminal big international road trip that kind of hooked me on that sort of stuff because of uh, just how great it was. So we get into that as well and uh, a good long interview. And uh, I want to just say that while we're moving into the dark time here, although it's actually almost over, just have like four days to go before we turn back to the light. And, uh, you know, we have sort of the little baby Jesus to thank for, you know, rev- reviving the uh, Saturnalia or the pagan solstice rites, keeping that stuff alive. Uh, yeah, you know, he wasn't actually born on the 25th of December, right? Yeah, they just co-opted uh, the Romans thing. But yeah, anyway, moving on. Yeah, so so we get to celebrate a little bit, um, and I personally enjoy celebrating, again, the movement back towards the light, away from the dark time, which is coming up. But Lee is down there in the Blue Mountains of Australia in summertime, and that is for better and worse, because much of that area is on fire or has burned in the last few weeks. Total ecological disaster. I'm not sure how it's affected the climbing, but doesn't really matter, considering the scope of what's gone on. And I just want to uh, sort of give a shout out and hope that the climbing community is dealing and is safe and are going to be able to pick up the pieces from that. Unfortunately, uh, it's probably just around the corner for a lot of areas in the United States as well. Yep, it's all looming. Anyway, there you go. Happy holidays on that dark note. Okay, I'm actually going to skip the outro because this one's long and frankly, I don't feel like it. So I'll just say it now. Check your knots. And remember, Malcolm Daly this year clued us in to, uh, to a greater meaning of that little phrase that I started so, so long ago. It means check your tie-in knot, check your partner's tie-in knot, but also those other important knots, especially the knot on the end of your rappel rope and the knot on the end of the rope you're lowering somebody with. Just put them in there. It would prevent so, so many terrible accidents. So be safe out there. Hopefully your holidays are shaping up to be awesome. Hopefully you don't eat too much. And uh, I'll probably talk to you in the new year. So carry on, be safe, and check your knots. Hey, what's up? It's your toes talking here. That's a nice alpine climb you got there. I'd hate to see something happen to it. Like when we get cold... Life gets pretty miserable, eh, Hotshot? Instead of a ballerina up there, you feel like a walrus. Not a svelte walrus who swims all day, but one of them big ones who lets seagulls crap on them. And if we ever do warm up again, well, get ready to howl like a banshee. And not a cool banshee that scares everybody, but one of them banshees the other banshees make fun of for sounding stupid. So get with it, buddy, and get some sick mountain boots from Sportiva. That's right, Italian-made. So high-tech they're like, what? Oh, we gotta go? All right. 
Just listen to your toes and check out all of Sportiva's ice climbing and big mountain boots at Sportiva.com or your local shop and tell them your toes sent you. Well, it's the Grampians and it, it is like it's a world-class climbing area and it's the biggest, you know, there's 8,000 routes in the Grampians and like currently, you know, close to 50% of these these routes are banned. So, you know, it's this idea that, well, it should be a national and, and an international like outcry and, and something that should be, you know, solved at, at that level with people getting behind it at, at all levels. Right. But probably still we're in the very initial stages of this whole thing. Like it's, you know, we're in the first, um, it's only been sort of six to eight months since these bans have been passed down. So that's the, that's the challenge. The challenge now is to get people active because I've always said that in terms of access, I always feel like Australia is 20 years behind where you guys are at with, with access, with the access fund, uh-huh. um, like literally 20 years behind. Right. We've, Everything's been taken care of at a local level. Like it's always been, it'd be one key climber at a local area that interacts with a landowner, um, manages to get climbing, you know, up and running on on a, on a piece of land or, or prevents it from being closed. But nothing has ever been done at, at a even even a national and really even at a state level. Uh-huh. So yeah, that's where it's at. And so to have something of this magnitude happen now, it's it's thrown everyone for a loop, and we're we're now struggling to. Find the me- find the levers of, right. of action. So how do you, rather than just being indignant, what are the actual, <laughs> which, you know, everyone is, right. um, but finding the actual levers, like how can we, and the, the beautiful thing is we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Obviously, you know, the legal system is different in Australia than it is in the States, but at the same time, we're, we're now starting to understand that where this is going to be fought um, is going to be, it's going to be a legal thing. It's not going to be a public perception thing. It's not going to be... Um, um, petitions and letter writing, it really is going to be legal. That's right. where we're going. Yeah, I mean, I guess that was the gist of what we had just talked about was um, the idea that, yeah, it, did it, I mean, how out of the blue was it? And I, I'm not going to press you too much for details. We got a lot more to talk about, but, and and plus you might not be quite in the know as you need to be, but did it felt like, or at least the way it's been talked about it, it felt a little bit like, yeah. Hey, everybody. All all this area, all these areas are are banned, and and people were like, "What?" It really did come out of the, and it was, it was not only it was a confusing message. That was the tricky thing when they, um, usually large organizations that have you know, and look, my wife works in one like where where there's there's whole teams of you know communication teams of people that are, that are that are there to help get a message out in a clear and succinct way. Um, Parks Victoria did not do that, and there was a lot of confusion as these as these bans were, were coming out as to the reasons for the bans, what areas were banned. We're talking about an area that's like you know more than a hundred square kilometers, like it's a huge you know from one side to the other kind of thing. It's a huge area, a massive area, and people were wanting to know. It's it's you know for Americans, what Americans need to like to to, to equate it. If you've never been there, imagine an area. You know, a lot of people have been to the Red River Gorge. Imagine they were saying, oh, yeah, s- certain areas of the, you know, a, a percentage of the-, the gorge is being shut down. Well, what areas of the gorge? You know, and that's what we're saying in the Grampians. Well, what areas? What, what, what's been shut and why? And there were throwaway lines about, um, you know, bolts being placed near areas of cultural significance. That was the original line. But then 
as more and more digging has 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 happened, um, we find out through freedom of information that these bans had actually been planned years and years in advance. Right. So, but and you would think that with years and years in advance of planning, that the clarity around the bans would have been, um, you know, when the message came out. Oh well, it affects these areas. Right. They couldn't give us that. Right. Um, and so climbers were really unsure, and and you know it led to the situation of like climbers who had no idea rocking up at areas, and there's guys in flak jackets. There's Parks Victoria enforcement officers huh. in flak jackets, um, stopping people and and pulling them off climbs. And right. this has happened in the last twelve months. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Right. And, and in Australia, particularly, this is just completely unheard of. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. that's, I mean, and, and the other thing that's interesting, I think, is that this is not a place, you know, where a climbing is all that new. I mean, it's been going on in in the Grampians, and then Arapiles, which is right next door, is sort mm-hmm. of the proto Australian climbing area, you know. So it's like, yeah, it, it 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 it's it's wild, and it's um, I mean, the details, like I said, we don't have enough time, and you probably don't know them all. So um, but it, it's a it's a place to start. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's probably if you if you had to say what's topical about right. Australian climbing right, right now right. in the meet, you know, if you're talking to an Australian climber, what's at the forefront of my mind right now is 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 these bands in the Grampians and probably what it means for um, not only the the Grampians themselves, but then what it means as as more of a precedent, I guess, because you know, and I'll speak to you more about this, but you know, like living in the Blue, I, I live in another key climbing area, the Blue Mountains, and. We, you know, the people that live there are worried about the precedent that that this sets for, you know, these um, governing bodies to be able to enforce. I mean, there's a lot of talk now as to whether these, um, remember, it's, you know, it's public land. It's there for the public interest. Can you really ban something that is, uh, you know, that is a legitimate recreational pursuit in a, in a public area? This is right. what they're, they're talking about this right now. And But as I was saying before, this is where it'll be won or lost is really sort of the idea of, what are public lands used for, um, and how to balance? I mean, what I've always understood national parks to be is a balance of these 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 values. And the one value is sort of an environmental value. Another is a a cultural value, and another is um, you know recreational. And, and and it's it's trying to balance those values um, to get the best return on investment, essentially, of, of having something, you know, designated as a national park or a, or a piece of public land. Well, it's interesting what you said about being, you know, 20 years behind, if you will, on the access thing, because that, if you want to, if you want to talk about what the access fund has been up to for the last 20 years on a philosophical level, that's it. And it, it's creating climbing as a legitimate user group and recreational activity in the eyes of these landowners because 20 years ago it wasn't it was like somebody you know a group of people that i think they felt like they could totally push around because there was no organization so really i mean you nailed it because that's honestly i think the last two decades of the access fund or however long it's been that's really been their entire mission is to be able to go to the table as this like no you can't just tell us we can't do this because we have this now history of it being a legitimate recreation use in a public land. So um, you're really on the mark as far as that being, I think, the issue that you guys are dealing with at this point. Yeah, for sure. And like that, I suppose that if there's a key takeaway to this whole thing for anybody that's listening, that 
that is interested in this issue generally and and potentially wants to be able to to climb in the Grampians is um, support now is the big thing. So, I mean, if you Google um, ACAV climbing, you'll be taken to the Australian Climbing Association Victoria um, website. And what people like, I mean, if you're watching social media at the moment and uh, we're seeing people like Hazel Finlay and Paige Classen putting out direct-to-camera kind of pieces on their social media saying, guys, look, it's one of the best climbing areas in the world. We've got to protect it. So we don't have, in Australia, we don't have an access fund. I think hopefully, you know, some this will maybe a catalyst for something like that to form. But you just have to remember we've got, you know, 10 times less population so we've just it's it's feet on the ground it's um and it's and it's money in the kitty for doing things that might um, end up in court and so ultimately if people want to even if you don't live in victoria it's a really cool thing and a lot of climbers have been joining the acav it's 15 australian dollars like 10 bucks us but even if you go to the site now you can just hit the donate button and give a couple bucks or or whatever you can and i just i, I think of it as a way of even if you've never climbed there and you want to climb there in the future, five bucks now might mean that you have an amazing climbing trip down the track. So a bit of a show of support now is really going to help those guys have the fighting funds they need to be in a position to advocate on climbing's behalf. Yeah. So, I mean, really think about it as like a future donation to your trip to Australia because and what kind of what we're here to talk about a little bit is just about Australian climbing. I mean, you're going to have to represent the entire continent um but 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 my point is is like you want to put your investment in because if you are a climber of any type sport bouldering trad you want to do a trip to australia some point in your lifetime because the climbing there is mega the culture there is mega the the climbing culture there is is amazing and honestly your $10 investment into some future trip that you do down the line, it has to happen. So let's get to talking about Australian climbing in general and, and start in, in with, with your background. You live in the Blue Mountains now, but you're from Queensland, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I've got like 20 years background of, of learn, like my whole climbing journey started in, in Queensland as a, you know, 17-year-old. Right. Yeah. And out, out of Brisbane. Yeah, Brisbane, the capital of Queensland. So Queensland is the one that has the Great Barrier Reef, and it's the one that is the you'd call it like the redneck state. So like we've got the we got cat the cowboys, we got dust, we've got a lot of sun, we got great beaches, right? Um, and it's hot most of the time. Yeah. That's so. But, but they say the weather is like crocodiles, you know, crocodiles, yeah, yeah, and all the things that'll kill you. You know that that's Queensland. So yeah, that's, another, yeah, for yeah. Sure. Absolutely. That's where I'm from. That's where I, I wasn't born there. I was we do have to do a segment on the stuff that'll kill you. Oh, for sure. It's all, it's all over the place in Australia. But Definitely. Um, so, I mean, as a kid in Queensland, you obviously, if you're like a kid and you want to do something athletic and cool, I think it would like surfing. Surfing has yeah. got to be it. Yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah. what happened to make you turn to climbing? I think I got my, I got, got my surfboard and just ditched it like straight and just got absolutely drilled in, you know, 10 times and then found it was really, really hard to paddle back out and thought, man, I'm just doing way more. Like the admin factor for surfing seemed so high. You were just spending all this time paddling for like just a micro amount of time on, on the wave or, or getting drilled into the sand. And I just thought, oh man, it's not for me. Also, I was like a mega late bloomer. So I, yeah, I, 
I lost my last baby tooth as I was going into university. Oh, wow. So, that's what we're talking about. So, like, you know, trying to mix it with the guys out in the surf, it just wasn't happening. So, not super athletic. I mean, I, I fit the picture for mo- you know, for a lot of climbers where it's like team sports. Yeah, no, nah, not interested. Not really doing that kind of stuff. I was into music and individual sports. So, yeah. As soon as I managed to bump into climbing, like randomly, um, it was pretty much love at first sight, and that was it. And what did it look like uh, in in Brisbane, the climbing scene? Uh, I guess this would have been twenty years ago. Yeah, well, this is tw- yeah twenty five years. This is ninety four. Okay, ninety four. Ninety four. All right. Yeah, yeah. It was when I when I first. It was well. You've got to. Say, it's pretty interesting to think of now, and I I'm I'm always amazed. I'm constantly amazed when I go around and even travel around the states and look at um, small towns that have multiple gyms um, and really modern setups. And I'm seeing that expand. And that's happening in Australia right now too. So we're getting like, you know, this um, gyms popping up really close to each other. And like the the, the scene is, particularly the indoor scene is really expanding. And um, But back then, nah. So you've got a city of 2 million people, the one climbing gym, really small, ultra small, like not much bigger than say a racquetball court. And um you know, kind of plywood walls. I can't even remember if they were, I think they were painted, but that's about it. And um, yeah, the basics of the most basic gym. And it, it had only been open for a couple of years at that point. So yeah, it was very, very basic. Yeah, that was no different in the States though. Yep. In, in 1994, you know, there, there wasn't much going on here, maybe out West here, but yeah, I mean, even the city of Chicago didn't have much more than that. There was like a theater that had or bolted holds on the walls and stuff like that in 94. So it's a coincidence, though, because um, 94 was my big trip to Australia. Actually. Really? Yeah, it would have been 94, 95. Um, wow. That, that's your summer, our winter, over the holidays and the whole thing. So, um, so yeah, that was like a sort of a nexus between the two of us. Of I had actually been there for a couple weeks at the end of a, of a long stint in New Zealand um, in 1991 or two probably 91 actually and then i went back for like a pure climbing trip um in 94 if you ever went to somewhere like kangaroo point which is the in in brisbane it's actually you know to briefly mention it it's one of the even in all my travels now and we'll speak about some of that but it's still one of the rare places where you can be in the in like in the central business district the center of the city and have a cliff that is there, that is lit up, that you can climb at night, that has 400 routes, and it's right in the middle of the city, and you, people can just go and climb there. Really? Yeah. It's absolutely amazing. Like, it, And when I say absolutely amazing, I don't mean that it's like it's it's uh, Seuss quality. It's it's not. <laughs> it's uh, It actually, for people that climb at Smith, it's it's volcanic tuff, okay. so it's that kind of rock, so it's a little bit like Smith in that way. Um, it was an old quarry. It's right on the river, so that's where... I like you know we if you're talking 94 95 if you went there you would have you would have actually had gear you would have been climbing but you would have seen a couple of really gangly little stupid teenage kids mucking around with plastic rope that they got from their parents trailer and like sitting because we didn't have enough rope we'd sit on the top and then try and like you know bring bring each other up on on harnesses that we'd made out of the same rope, and then like a D shackle for the belay device. Uh huh. And you would have you would have just shook your head and walked the other way, and that would have been me. Right on. Yeah, yeah. that's such a great story because it's such a common uh, thing. This whole like, I mean, at least twenty some years ago or more of like just gathering things from the shed and trying to figure out h- how to do it from 
from what? I mean, what? Where did you have your even it's an pre, idea of how? Remember, to deal it's with pre, it? it's pre-internet. You right. know, we talk about this yeah. pre-internet yeah. thing. So it's like, yeah, look, grab a car. And like for a lot of people, it was like, you know, Royal Robins, right. basic the rock, rock craft. craft. Yeah, no, it didn't didn't have that. It was um at that time, it was it was John Long. It was it was how to rock climb. Okay, yeah, yeah, that, had, that was would, around by then. Yeah, yeah that would that had probably just come out. You know, maybe within a year or something. That was that was the book. Um, read it, memorize it, and then you have no money. So, because you, you're not working yet, this is the transition of kind of high school. I mean, maybe I had a, I, I worked a couple of odd jobs or whatever, but there's really no money going around, and you're getting ready to transition out of out of high school and go to uni. Figure it out. Desperately want to climb. Desperately, you don't have money for a harness. You're just going to make one. Yeah, 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 that's awesome. I didn't get up to Queensland at that time. The only known climbing that I knew about was frog buttress, um, crack climbing. And which I did want to get up there, but it was the wrong, it's just the wrong season because I was there and, and, and probably in a pretty warm type of, uh, of environment. But also it's a freaking far away. You know, if I flew into Sydney, which is what I did, uh, going over to Melbourne's not that big of a deal, but you know, heading up the coast that far was, seemed like a long way to go. People are really amazed when you talk about the, the size. So they, you know, like, oh, Australia, it's that little island down there. Yeah. Whatever. No, no. And then you take the – this is a cool exercise where they take the overlay, so they pick up Australia, and then they drop it onto the United States. like on, And it the area that it covered, like that lower 48th or mm-hmm. whatever you, you guys say for that whole area of, you know, all those – all the best bits in the middle there, it covers that whole area. Right. So, you can think of all of those – you know, Australia is, the, is as big as all of that. Right. So, when we talk about distances and travel and, – and the thing with, you know, the difference between the cultures is – you know, we can drive from one of your coasts to the other and I'm driving, yeah, there's there's empty bits, but also there's towns, there's towns, there's mm-hmm. towns, there's people, there's different states. It's all really interesting, pretty cool. In Australia, we just populate the outside. No one goes in the middle. Right. So, the, there's this whole big um, empty section of the middle of the country and I don't mean completely empty. You know, we know there's Ayers Rock and there's other, there are towns out there, but in general, you've got more than 90% of the population that are living just around that fringing rim of the of the country. And so, the climbing areas, they are super spread out. So, yeah, as you say, you know, you could easily come to, you know, when people say, oh, how long should I do on a trip to Australia? It's like, well, it really depends on how many areas you want to hit and how you're going to do that because the distances between if you want to – and they'll often say things like, well, I'd like to go to – I want to go – they all say the Arapiles. It's not the Arapiles. You just say, I want to go to – Arapiles. That's it. So I'm just gonna let's get that out there right now. I want to. It's like when people say sports climbing, right? You know, I want to go do some sports climbing. Yeah, well, you know, just drop the S, all right? It's who sport you're climbing. dealing with at uh, that point. Absolutely. You can just. Uh, oh, what was that? I have to go. I'm just gonna go. So yeah, I want to go to Arapiles, and also I wouldn't mind going to Cairns. You know, they often say that because Cairns is where the Great Barrier Reef is, um, and I'm gonna hire a car. Like, have you got just, I mean, great. Now you can just type it into Google. You'll figure out how far that is. Right. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's a thing. So, just figure out where, yeah, the key areas are because those distances are pretty massive. And yeah. there's not much in between. No. I mean, the that corner where Sydney, Melbourne, and so Arapiles, Grampians, Blue Mountains, um, now is down in that zone too. Yeah. So. Which is a lifetime of climbing. Absolutely. I mean, and, and a whole big variety. That zone is relatively compact and close together. Relatively. And that's kind of the zone that I was in, both trips, actually. Yeah, so. you're kind of talking 12 hours driving yeah. between any of 
those points, which right. is for Australia is super compact. Yeah. So when I used to live in Brisbane and I decided, you know, I packed up my plastic rope and went to uni in Townsville, which is still in the same state, but it's in the north because I wanted to do marine biology and be on the reef. You know, that's a 14-hour drive. Like, right. that's a straight shot, 14 hours. Right. And we're just talking, that's the same state, mm-hmm. but you're driving for, you know, the best part of a day. So, you went you went up there, um, but you were still basically hooked on climbing. Yeah. And going to, like, I didn't know anybody, didn't know anything, and really just wanted to go and look at fish and swim on the reef. Like, that was that's what I wanted to do for study. It sounded like a great way to, um, you know, get through three or four years of uni. But was just in the six months prior, really, like, super hooked on climbing and this idea of climbing. But then realized quickly when I when I got to town and looked up, I'm looking up at granite from the town and I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. Like, I didn't really know this. Like, there was no sort of, you know, research um, that I could do. It was just like, get there and figure out, oh, wow, there's mountains, there's cliffs. This is great. And I remember getting on my, I didn't have a car um, for the first little while of being there because I would have been, you know, I was just turned 18 or something. It was, would have been my first semester, no car, had a bike and I tried to cycle from the uni up to the top of where this cliff was and I had like I packed classic 18 year old behavior like I packed a bag of cc corn chips and just like a liter of water in a backpack and no climbing gear I didn't really have any I think I had a pair of shoes that's the only thing I had at that stage so I would have packed those and tried to cycle up this hill I I don't know what the equivalent would be but it's like you know, it's a hundred degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> you know, like it really is, and right. and and just a million percent humidity. And and I made it about as the grade started going up this hill, and it was a huge. And I only realised later I never would have made it. Like it was like you know, it was a twenty kilometer or you know, like fifteen, you know, thirteen mile journey up the hill, like up a a really big hill to get to the top of this cliff. And um, yeah, I only realised later I was never going to make it on the bike. Eh? But I was I was committed. I was motivated. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. really wanted to touch that rock. I was, and I remember what it was like to be that psyched. So was it developed climbing up there? Or you there was, the and it was, yeah. and it was some guys from the state. So a okay. guy a guy called Scott Johnson. Huh. I don't know if anyone's listening that knows Scott Johnson. Like I, I'm, I'm trying to think. Ah. Oh. I used to remember Scott's US climbing history, but he came out um, again to study at university, and and he had some skills. He was he was a key a key developer. Like while he was at uni, Townsville was one of those weird places where people go there only for a few different reasons. One reason is the university that's there, and its proximity to the Great Barrier Reef. The other is there's a huge army base there, so. Typically, people are going there for one of those two reasons. So, there's a whole bunch of like what we call AJs, like army jocks, like so just army dudes and their families, mm-hmm. and then and then academics largely. So, the climbing that sounds like a like a really <laughs> peaceful mix of people. <laughs> I'm sure nothing ever came of that. <laughs> well, I just remember the climbing falling into two camps as well. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, there were the people that had the military background that were mm-hmm. the climbers, mm-hmm. and and because climbing does have a big, you know. There's a big part of militaristic, gear-focused, rappelling frontwards down. And look, while I'm t- talking about rappelling frontwards <laughs> down things, I'm, I'm hearing only recently that this is, you know, you guys call this Australian <laughs> abseiling or, or, or Australian rappelling. Yeah, something like that. We don't say abseiling, that's for sure. But no. yeah, the 
I guess that's what it's. Called. I mean, you would never do that rock climbing, but it's a military thing. Is it's to a military. It's so you can first. shoot your enemies yeah, like on the before your feet. Or you don't get your feet shut off. Shot off. Yeah, yeah. As they come over the lip. Yeah. Where that term came from? Like, I'm reliably informed from some people in the know that we do not do that. This is not a thing. This okay. is a. Right. So we can we can quit that. And I think we've all seen some great videos of where that goes wrong. Yes. Um. Yeah. We don't want to be associated with that. All right. Well, it's too late. So. Okay. Okay. I'm trying to. I'm trying to. Just, uh, yeah. You can. I can. Try just, I'm here want. to dispel myths. Um, right. So there's the mil- There was the military side of climbing. And then there was the academic side of climbing. So Scott and and his cohorts were putting up roots with with the skills they'd learned in the states. And I'm sure it was Smith. I think he had a he had a history in Smith. Mm-hmm. It was fairly virgin. So the the granite there is really like. Unlike any other granite that I've climbed on, it's super fine-grained. It doesn't form the classic sort of domes. It's nothing like Vedavu, uh, where you get those sort of flaring cracks. It's not like that at all. It's not like – and it's not glaciated. So, it's – you know, we don't have glaciers in Australia. So, it's nothing like Yosemite. It's more akin to a very, very hard sandstone that has amazing flakes and the lichen – I've still never climbed – there are some places in the States where the lichen gets bright yellow, mm-hmm. like the needles and stuff right. like that. Um, it's a little bit more like that. Okay. And it, so, yeah, it was amazing. But it was largely when – I, when I got there, there was maybe 100, 100 roots on this, on this section of – and what I'm talking about is for people that know it is Mount Stewart. There was like 100 roots at that time. And, but I suppose the interesting thing about not me but maybe my generation of people sort of mid-90s, it was that desire to do new roots. Right. Yeah, that was a big thing. And so, even with very basic skills and basic knowledge and basic gear and really no idea, I was very keen to do new routes straight away. So, did you end up climbing up there a bunch and, and putting up stuff? Every Yeah. like yeah. So, like for the first, just constantly up there, within the first year, we were finding new routes to do and we'd do them on like the most basic trad that we had because we didn't have anything else. And they're terrible and probably unrepeated, you know, just, but you just, it was the thrill of finding something, you know, right. really scrutinizing the guidebook and then finding something that hadn't been done that you think was, was doable and then doing it. And then eventually probably that second or third year is when I, you know, made the almighty purchase of the drill. And that was big news at that time. Like, right. it, yeah, drilling far more accepted these days, you know, going and bolting a new route. That's very accepted. At that time, it was definitely the culture was, it was clandestine. I remember being told that for every for every hole you drill, that's another person that's going to hate you. Oh, really? Yeah, that was like from a mentor that was climbing there at the time. That that was the that was the idea. And so when people, I just had a friend message me um, saying he was he was going to be up there and should he do he he'd taken a photo of the guidebook of a route I'd done and he said should I do should I do this or not? And I remember thinking how run out it was, and it wasn't really to do with bravado or anything like that. It was that ringing in your ears that. Wow, for every hole I drill, it was a desecration thing. It's like, oh, you can't, you know, if you can do it, do that thing with five bolts instead of the nine that it needs, that's how it should be done. Right. Yeah. The, yeah, the side of the, like the trad leaking into the bolted root thing that happened everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah, at, yeah. at that time, particularly, yeah. it was a very difficult transition, I think, right. from, from a, from a no bolt or a minimal bolt ethic into what we now know as as modern sport climbing. Right, right. Yeah, and in Australia, you know, we're lagging behind you guys and, and everywhere else, and you guys were, were even lagging behind Europe and would be the first to admit it, you know, in terms of, like, transition to what we now know as modern sport climbing and, right. and let alone um, far north Queensland, you know, we're yeah, talking no, the, even, yeah. even further back. You now, know, is, this like a, is this like an established sort of destination cliff now? Is it still just a local podunk? I would say that it's... 
even even in the in the sort of the zeitgeist of national climbing in right. Australia, it's not well known right. because it's just too far from anywhere. Yeah. And even when I was there, so I was there for four years. You know, I did over 50 new routes, bolted new routes while I was there in that time. So that was pretty big when there was only like 100 there to begin with. Over a whole host of cliffs, not just that one, but other ones as well. Another whole 40 minutes drive from there has now been in the last kind of, well, again, probably 10 years been discovered, this area called Frederick's Peak. I would definitely call that area completely, I'm not going to go so far as to say world-class because it needs to be pretty amazing to be world-class, but national class area. But does the rest of the country really know or care? Not really. Uh It's mostly three guys that are developing it. They've now got hundreds of routes there. It is incredibly good, incredibly good. And will it, will it ever be super popular? No, because it's in the middle of nowhere. Like, it's right. way up there on the, you know, way away from the other major capital cities. And for a lot of the year, it's really, really hot. Right, right. So, they've got the this low, really yeah. limited season of prime conditions. And so, for that reason, yeah. um, it's only really going to be the locals that mm-hmm. um, and the few really keen adventurous uh, climbers that will go Now, are you um, back in the day, back when you were, were, were you jill- drilling... So this would have been like still in the nineties. Yeah, yeah. You, were you putting in carrot bolts? Now look, the carrot bolt. We should probably because <laughs> I reckon a lot talk of, about what that is. We should probably just mention it. A lot of people will know what it is, but like let's 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 put it out there. So the carrot bolt is is a bolt that gets and look to be perfectly accurate because <laughs> we really we're splitting hairs here. But okay. like let's get into it because people want to know this stuff. It's important. So the carrot bolt really sometimes you'll see a bolt that has no hanger on it and it's protruding from the rock slightly. I don't know where you'd see that in, in the States. It probably doesn't really exist. Sometimes you see, like when I did walls in Yosemite, like you would see rivets. Yeah, but they're not carrot bolts. They're not carrot bolts, right. but it's the, it's a similar idea. It's a, it's a piece of metal sticking out of the wall. It's got a head on it, but it doesn't have a hanger. So, what do you do with it? Right. Well, and there's two variations of this. One is the glue-in machine bolt which would be termed a carrot. Like people just call it a carrot, but it's not a true carrot because a true carrot is a bolt. It's not glued in. So it is a bolt that's called a carrot because it has been filed into the shape of a carrot and it can be conically filed, but more commonly they're actually like a a square. Um, So imagine you did four filing jobs on on a machine bolt. So it was vaguely tapered and you would then drill a hole that was ultimately slightly too small and you would bash the carrot in, t- in there until essentially it's almost like hammering a pitten into a, into a crack. Right. That is a classic carrot. Yeah. And car- carrots were really well known as being either completely bomb-proof, like really good and really difficult to remove because we, we're doing a lot of rebolting these yeah, things yeah. now. So, but the thing about carrots is like they would either be bomber or they would just come out. Right, um, and it was very unpredictable to to tell what was going to happen with them. Um, and if the, the 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 true artists of the carrot bolt, they were really you know they were artists, and right. and, and their bolts were really good. And then, but there's a little, been a lot of carrot bolts that have also fallen out. Over well, the time. thing about it is, and this is it's a very the reason I I brought it up is because it's a very Australian thing. Although it's fading, I think from memory because they are getting replaced. Yep, and you guys started paying for bolt hangers. Um, good on you. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, traditionally, uh, 20, 25 years ago, again, you know, places like Arapolis were all carrots. Basically. Absolutely. Yeah. You would struggle to find a hanger. Yeah. 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 And so the other part of it is, is that you, that you, um, would climb with these key lock 
hangers that have like uh they have a slot on them so you'd you'd have them in your chalk bag generally yep and as you got to the bolt you'd have to put the hanger on and then once the draw went through the hole it would lock the hanger onto the bolt so you'd slide it on in a slot and then the the actual beaner through the hole would then make sure that the thing couldn't come off of there once the draw was on there but it was like a a, a very tricky situation between placing it and clipping it where you could very easily knock it off yeah um as you were trying to get your because it was like if you've ever had to clip a really bad spinner and it's like your draw won't go through the hole all of them every single one of them is literally a spinner until you get your freaking draw on it and so i just i just remember in a rapley's like you know you you just occasionally hear this like ping ting 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 down these gullies cuz somebody either like was wobbling as they pulled it out of their chalk bag or like usually knocked it off like throwing the uh throwing the draw on these things that's booty yeah, yeah totally you, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so if in those days as you as you basically landed in australia landed in sydney these things are not available anywhere else in the world you had to go down to the climbing shop and kick down for you know you didn't you weren't sport climbing on carrots so you could probably get away with like five or six at the most yeah um, for these stainless steel, uh, key, yeah, keyhole hangers, yeah, like keyhole we call, hangers. yeah, removable yeah. brackets, whatever yeah, you want to yeah, call yeah, them. Yeah. yeah. So, but let me say something about the carrot bolt because one of the main, I think, one of the big problems with them is they is they were an art, and therefore they were very difficult to place just right. Where you got the you got the head just flush, you know, it's just like a piton where you drove it right almost to the eye, and then that was the end. And because I also remember a lot of them sticking out and then they would be bent downwards from sticking people out, falling. Sticking falling out too far. Yeah, like yeah, an yeah. inch. But yeah. then when people would fall, they would bend. That's right. But that was also a testament to how strong they, they actually could be. And the only thing, last thing I'll say about this is that that actually Powers Rawl, who make the five-piece Rawl, or used to, I don't know, it's changed hands so many times. But the typical bolt that are still used all over the U.S., they actually make a concrete bolt that is very similar in function and style to a carrot bolt where it's only the compression of the bolt in the hole that is actually keeping it in there. Yeah, we call it an interference fit. Yeah, okay. Is that yeah. what it's called? Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it is sort of a, a legit design if done exactly right. The problem is, is they're being done in someone's garage and then placed maybe well, maybe not well. Who knows? You know. Yeah, absolutely. So, but it was—it's a cultural curiosity, and I was only speaking to you know people in the canyon about it today, right? And like just telling them the they were like, "Oh, surely things go wrong with that." I'm like, "Well, yeah, they, you know, they they absolutely do like they and have done." And there's great stories. Like there's a, there was an excellent story in in one of the guidebooks again for Townsville that was you know this case where you know the visiting the visiting hotshot comes along and um you know. It's a it's a carrot bolted root, and as you know, these things like we call them keyhole hangers because the shape of them is is like a keyhole. So when you you put the large bit, like you know the the, the, the you know the thickest bit of the keyhole cut out over the bolt head, but you must then spin it one eighty so it drops into the slot. Right. But it's possible if you've got skinny, um, you know, more modern I beam style 
um, carabine is that you could put the big end over the bolt and then clip through the slot, which is a skinny bit, with your, you know, your skinny, you know, wire gate or oh, something like that. Right. And so if you do that, you're in a situation where, and this is what happened, you know, the guy climbs the route, he's 20 meters off the deck, he's approaching the crux, uh, reaches up to clip, clips the crux bolt, moves above it, and just all of the gear of the route just rattles off onto the ground. And now the blaze in it, and he doesn't notice. So the belay is now in a situation where he's looking up at his at his dude that's twenty meters up and approaching. You know he's just about to enter the crux. What do you do? Are you you are, you've got one of two things you can do at this point? You tell the guy, "Hey man, you've just lost all of your gear and you're soloing," or you just don't say anything and you just let him try to do the crux because you know you tell him he's going to be completely completely rattled and like what can he do? Or he does the crux and he tops it out. And so, yeah, the story was this guy didn't mention it. He just he just calmly paid out slack, took a few steps back, and uh, let this guy go for it. The guy manages to uh, squeak his way through the crux and tops the root out and stands on top. And then the guy says, oh, by the way, you just soloed that. Well done. So, yeah, things can go wrong with the, the carrot bolt and the, the associated keyhole hangers. And th- the interesting thing now is because beaners have gotten smaller and smaller in width, right. you know, we get these tiny beaners now. It, it often means that even if you clip them the right way, if you rattle them around, they can still come off. Right, right. Yep. So that's the kind of situation we're facing now. And that's why, that's one of the major reasons that is, you know, we're going down a path of, of um, you know, ob- obviously replacing these things. Yeah, obviously where we, where we replacing can. these yeah. things where you can. Yeah. But again, you know, another reason was, yes, we're cheap. Australians are cheap. But the, the second one was um, from a visual impact point of view, they are very, you know, it, it, where that is an issue, that's the yeah. Good, they they're good for that. disappear. They disappear. Yeah, because yeah, they're often very rusty as well. So they're like, <laughs> they're they just they just blend right in. <laughs> mild mild steel ones, I'm told, are actually really bomber because the mild the rust when something rusts, it actually expands, mm-hmm. um, and so they get really bomber in the hole. Yeah. So well, that's yeah, it's kind of a kind of an interesting thing. Well, about. my trip there too was pre-internet, again, and that that changed a lot about traveling that people have. And myself included has forgotten about in terms of information of how to get information. Australian guidebooks, uh, I remember they actually had one or two at Neptune Mountaineering um, because they had sort of a common shelf there um, that you could go in and and find rare or like guidebooks from places that that you couldn't – because you couldn't order one off the internet. So, literally, there was almost no way to get one in the States unless somebody had brought it back. So I remember looking at Neptune, but I definitely have a distinct memory of going. The first thing I did when I flew into Sydney was go to a shop because that's that's all I could do is like figure out where a climbing shop was, go in there and be like, all right, where do I go climbing? I mean, as simple <laughs> as that. I know there's the Blue Mountains are around here somewhere. Yeah. Um, or they're on this map, this big green area, no cliffs. Where do I go? And they were like, okay. This is where you go. You're going to take this train. You're going to get off at this stop. You're going to literally, you're going to walk down these two streets. At the end of that street, you're going to go into the woods, follow a trail, and you'll end up at the top of uh, Piddington. Perfect. Right. Yeah. And that's literally the information I had to get to a, a cliff. And then they were like, You are going to be here for a while. And we're like, Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be here for a few months. And they're like, Okay, you need to buy these. You need to buy at least four of these things and here they are and they showed me what these things are and they're like um, i i was just confused and i'm like okay 
I will take your advice and buy these things. And of course, it ended up being that four wasn't enough because I kept throwing them down into gullies and they were disappearing. But luckily, yeah. I, I'm, I don't know where in Natamuk you could get them, but you could get them somewhere from some guy that dealt those things um, to, to wayward American climbers like myself that kept chucking them over my shoulder um, into the gully below. So Yeah, he's just collecting them there and reselling yeah, them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> There's a collection point at the bottom of the yeah, gully. Totally. He just has a small container there. They just gather and he just comes and picks them up like crab pots. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, that's some Australian lore. Um, yeah. The carapult, hopefully fading away a little it, bit. It is, it is. There's still, you know, there's still proponents. There's still uh, holdouts, just like in every area of the sport, you know, uh, people that think that... Uh, we should definitely still be clipping carrots, but um, yeah, particularly, I mean, the argument that definitely has has won people because the visual impact side of things right. is still a legitimate argument. Yeah, you know, you can't argue with that; it's legit. But um, the safety impact of the change in in equipment over time, and the fact that modern equipment is start, they used to be, you could say, if if done well, if you use them correctly and uh, using the gear of the day, they were bomber. You know, you could say that, but you can't say that anymore because people can be coming out of out of wherever with their skinny little Edelwood carabiners and right. it'll just rattle off rattle off the, the bolt. So that's hard to argue with. So yeah, I think um replacing well, these where that, it's where it's uh, I mean certainly the holdouts will be some of these artists, some of these guys that know how to play some. Because I think that's one of the other issues that I, I find a little disconcerting is and I say this to a lot of people, beginners getting into the sport, because they're always just like, well, how do I know that bolt's good? And I'm like, well, you don't 100%, but the truth is, is like drilling and placing a bolt is super, it's pretty hard to screw up completely to where that thing is just going to come flying out of there when when you clip it. Um, a, a modern expansion bolt, you know, you drill the hole, you pound it in, you, even if you didn't get it perfect, uh, it's usually got a lot of um you know tolerances for not being perfect and still being able being able to hold for a while right a carrot bolt i don't think you know you gotta get it in there the right way i mean if you don't drill the hole deep enough if it bottoms out before that what did you call the the action the interference fit yeah before the interference fit takes hold yeah i think that they could be you know somebody just like you when you first started drilling you were had only been climbing a couple few years. Yeah, the the art of a carrot might have eluded you at that point. Well, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think um, and and with all that stuff, it was always trial and error. But you don't want the error to involve someone else hitting the ground, right? Like right. that was the thing. And and but a lot of the holdouts will say, "Oh, well, don't worry about it. We can do glue in machine bolts now." Right. So like the glue in version of that, of which you know, which has all the advantages, but you know, you're still gluing oh, okay. it in. Um, so that's, it's like, oh, okay, well, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But if you're going to the trouble of gluing a bolt in, why wouldn't we just glue in a ring bolt? Um, you know, this is, and really, then you can only really go to, oh, well, it's, it, you can't see it as well or something. And a lot of those things are hard to argue with now that climbing in the last 20 years, climbing has come a long way. And like only in the last couple of years in Australia has climbing been recognized thanks to some good work of, you know, people who were forward thinking about things like the Olympics Climbing is recognized as a legitimate sport now in right, Australia, right. like a, by the government. I feel like in the Blue Mountains, that that glue-in uh, ring bolts appeared there pretty early. I mean, even compared to what I had seen in the States. Because they I remember have... climbing in Centennial Glen that a lot of those were. 
Actually, I remember specifically because people were willing to tie through them when they couldn't when they couldn't top a root out um, as opposed to leaving a beaner. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, thread, thread and lower. Yeah, like, yeah, totally. So, I mean, it, you know, and again, that kind of is in the same realm as a glue-in carrot bolt. Um, a little bit more visually obvious, but. Yeah, yeah. I mean, still, like if comparing, say, a glue-in ring bolt or something to a to a hanger, um, they are far, like I, our preference in Australia generally, like we're pretty, in terms of bolting, I think we're, um, dare I say it, I think we're a bit ahead. Um, okay. in, in, in Australia for a couple of reasons. Um, I think there's a couple of catalysts to that and, and reasons for that. One is the fact that we climb on a lot of um, particularly soft rock. Um, so the Blue Mountains, for example, is way softer in general than, say, the Red River Gorge sandstone. So Red River Gorge sandstone, I'll see now. I mean, every time, every year I go back there, I see more and more glue in bolts, which is awesome to see. Um, super big proponent of, of that. But, you know, my first trip there, it was nearly all just, you know, uh, expansion bolts, just pounded mm-hmm. in. Those ex- same expansion bolts in the Blue Mountains would creep out of the hole and, and fail um, in, at most cliffs because right. it's, it's just a lot softer rock and expansion bolts don't work there. So because we wanted to climb these cliffs and we wanted to put, it, put bolts in, the guys at the time went, well, the only thing that really works here and works well, you know, trad works well on the cracks, but if we want to climb the faces, it's really soft we need to glue bolts in. We need to figure that out. And so that was figured out earlier than it was for most areas in the States. Um, and even, yeah, even certain areas in, I'm still amazed when I travel around Europe, which is mostly limestone, the areas I go to, that classics aren't being rebolted with, um, you know, uh, glue in ring bolts or glue in U bolts. Um, they're still just like ripping out the expansions and putting new expansions in, which have a whole host of problems right, that, that, right. that come with that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get to the Blue Mountains then. I have a few questions for you. Yeah. Um, did that big dog face thing fall off? <laughs> At one point it did. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, that's what created, so there's a there's a big. Or, or there was something where there was like a great big crack forming and maybe it was that too. Uh, but there was some, when I was there, there was some, they had put roots up on it, but there was some crack forming behind it that was going to make it fall off eventually and it was like being monitored and everything else. But the dog face fell off and then they climbed it out. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so like the earliest roots on dog face, which is a really impressive, but impre- like visually impressive, incredibly chossy, like a huge, like two rope length kind of face. Um, a lot of aid roots on it from the, I, I want to say 60s um, right. and, and onwards that only now there's probably just a couple of people in the country um, that are interested in sort of getting on these things and trying to free them. Um, and But, you know, we're only talking like maybe, you know, 10 to 15 routes across the face. Oh, okay. Probably the, you know, most people would say that the scariest place to climb in the Blue Mountains. Okay. Yeah. And and whether it, you know, the next section of dog face just carves off, you know, like a, you know, like a ice iceberg or something. Right, um, right, right. I, I wouldn't be at all surprised. Okay. It looks like the softest section, um, you know, of the whole plateau. Maybe it was just like lore that, that, that had been been told to a, a young impressionable colorado climber um but that was a big deal and and when i was there again it was early 90s and so this transition to like pure sport climbing um had only just kind of taken hold there as well to where you're like bolting everything as well as you want to and not not with the philosophy like you had um but it had just crept in to a certain extent and most of the or a lot of the cliffs were were a sort of tra- mostly traditional 
Um, or, or mixed in some way, probably. Yeah, or mixed you, you, in some way, yeah. And, I, and I'm, you know, there's areas, even in this, that idea of mixed, yeah. that was very, like, when I started, and, and even in far north Queensland, that was the, definitely the, you know, like, and still you'll see, and even in the foreword of a lot of guidebooks um, that you'll read all around the world, it'll say things like, you know, where natural protection is available, it should be used, mm-hmm. um, and Bolt should only be placed as a last resort. Like, I see that in all sorts of guidebooks right. um, at all sorts of sport areas and stuff like that, and you kind of, you climb these routes and think, wow, that's an obvious camp placement, but it's one obvious camp placement in an otherwise sport route. Right. So, like, the obvious conclusion of that line of thinking is that, oh, well, let's just bolt the whole route and right, make, it, right. uh, make that homogenous. Didn't you say what I need to make clear is it did not used to be like that. If there right. was that one cam placement or an RP placement, a micro wire, um, yeah, yeah, right, you know, you placed that, that had to be placed, you know, you, uh, and that was the it was a real, it was a real big shift and a change to where the key loudest voices in the community at the time eventually acquiesced, um, to the idea of wow, it's going to be nine bolts. And a, and a number one friend to get you to the anchor, or let's just put in the bolt instead of that friend placement. Right. Um, so that we don't have to, every time we go to this cliff, take a one friend because we want to do that route. That took years and years and years. And so what that meant from a new routing perspective is the idea of mixed climbing, um, climbing with you know a handful of bolts on a pitch and then a bunch of trad, um, very, you know, pervasive across Australia at a lot of areas. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would imagine that it's still in a place like Arapiles. That was a kind of a wild place of a mix between old and modern because even when I was there, you know, Punks in the Gym was there. Um, Lord of the Rings was there. You know, these certain gullies had a bunch of, of pure sport climbing at the time, probably what most people would consider run out sport climbing now but yeah definitely like, you know but like like smith is and stuff and yet around the corner it's all trad or back to this ethic of like one bolt you know a bunch of gear another bolt generally and, and and also like you know not all the bolts that you want even even on those mixed routes um a lot of times again last resort like oh you're gonna hit the ground here or right, we'll, we'll give you a bolt but you we'll know, make it guy. just out of reach. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I felt it then, um, but that was going on here in the States as well. Um, but I also remember being in the Blue Mountains and, you know, you can, all, all the towns are up on top of these plateaus and you can, any side of any of these little towns, you can walk out to these various vistas and look out into these like lush valleys with cliffs everywhere. And I always remember you know, being like, well, is that got roots on it? And pointing to something like, no, it's like too far, too far, too far, too far, you know? And um, I think only the most obvious stuff had been climbed on, but that has to have changed by now. Yeah, there's been a, there's definitely been a, I mean, I think with every, and this would happen everywhere, like the the new generation are coming, like every, the old guards say, that's climbed out. And it's either an existing cliff, but then the new generation comes through, someone comes through with a, you know, fresh set of eyes and says, why haven't you done that obvious thing that's right there? Right. Uh, You know, we never saw it. Um, The same is true with with the cliffs. And some technological or mind shift advances have have happened to allow uh, cliffs that, that existed. So, for example... As you say, the towns in the Blue Mountains, you know, it's always a top-down approach where the, you know, town sits at the top and to go climbing, you always descend. So, you always walk down to the cliff 
um, that was always the, you know, we walk down to the cliffs and then we climb up. So the reimagining of that idea, and I love this in climbing where people like, you know, take something that used to be, a, you know, a certain way and then just reimagine it to get a whole other, a whole other, you know, take on it. And the new reimagining is, well, that area you can't access, you know, like there's, that's a great cliff. It's obvious that it's good, but you can't really see it from anywhere. But like what, and now we'll, so we'll abseil in. Well, it looks really good and we should bolt here. Um, it'd be an amazing cliff, but you just can't access it anyway. Well, you can access it if you, if you abseil in and then you have like a really subtle line of via ferrata rungs right. that allow people to climb out this other way, like very easily and quickly and safely, um, you know, this, this other way, you know, using a line of least resistance, we can access and climb at this whole sector, but we never, you know, it, the old guard would have never considered climbing there because you couldn't walk there on a walking track. Right. Um, and so a lot of the, a lot of the key areas now and the, the areas that are holding some of the, probably the best promise for, for hard climbing and, and that do hold the hardest climbing in the blue mountains now are areas that you abseil into uh-huh. and then uh, climb out of some rungs. Right. Um, at the end of the day. Yeah. Which is, and it's, it's opened up that idea, even though saying it out loud now, it's like, Oh, it seems pretty simple. Why didn't you think of that before? These things take a long time to become accepted and and to actually come to fruition. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's like if you're all if you have a whole era where you're worried about drilling holes for bolts, then yeah, exactly. like drilling holes for rungs and like doing all this altering is probably um, just a, a hard pill to swallow for a lot of the old guard. Too big of a leap, and yeah. maybe like there'd be you know this thought that there'd be too much resistance. Um, and and still like it like everywhere, there's you know there's people that are anti anti bolt and anti development in general. You know of root development, and in Australia being that little bit, you know we're lagging a bit. Yeah, people's acceptance of that kind of thing. Um, you know, there's always the fear as a developer. Like I'm a, I'm a sort of rabid developer. I always want to be doing new climbs and climbing new routes and finding areas and stuff. The fear is that, you know, and you, you approach this, a lot of people, I, I do, I sort of approach it as a a bit like art. And a lot of people have said that, you know, new routing is like like a piece of art. So you create something and you hope people will enjoy right. it and you hope you'll enjoy it. The big fear is that someone comes along and it's easier than ever these days to erase that, you know, to come through and basically a cordless grinders, you know, you just p- pick it up at the hardware store and you can erase anyone's art that was the big fear that you would annoy somebody enough um, with what you've done that they just come and come and basically, yeah, wholesale, um, wholesale chop it. And even in the last twelve months, that's happened in the Blue Mountains. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Still, still happening. Bolt wars. Bolt wars. Yeah. Is it personal couched in ethics the way I find it to be most of the times here, where it's like, oh, the, I have an ethical problem with this, but what it really is going on is I don't like that motherfucker who put that root up. In this particular case, I, I'm going to say no. Okay. Like I'll, I'll err on the side of okay. no. I think it's a. I think it's an ethical. I think it's an ethical issue. But it's just. It's kind of. I always have to just shake my head and say, right. "Wow, it's it's." I always think it should never get to that point. Like I just think it should never. There should always be another way. Anytime somebody's pulling out a grinder to chop someone's root, I think there should always be another way. It should never get there. In this particular case, it was happening in an area. I mean, it's that tricky thing. And like, I don't know about you guys here. And um, I, I always listen with interest to any of the, the podcasts that have on the guys from um, things like Access Fund or ASCA, you know, the Safe Climbing Association and the guys that are involved in bolting because I'm just super interested in it. But like the idea of bolts on public land 
um, is a is an issue. Like when I started developing, it's just you know you're doing something wrong. You know you you want to climb, you want to put up new roots, but there's just this idea that you know leaving bolts in public land of any kind is is something that you know in Australian legislation it's not accounted for. Like it they they kind of treat it and it has been treated in the past as what they can get you on is littering. Right. So you're leaving something in public land that wasn't there before. So they can, you know, this is not something that's accepted. Um, the Blue Mountains are a world heritage area. Um, so, and we're talking about climbing. Climbing's always been accepted in the Blue Mountains, um, and it has a strong history there. But it is a world heritage area, and yet we're doing things that allow for safe climbing in this area. But it's there's this kind of. Uh, the authorities kind of, you know, we, we kind of, there's, a, I don't know, it's this unspoken arrangement where climbing is going on um, and this is happening everywhere. It's probably happening happening here and everywhere else in the world where do the authorities really want to know that Joe Bloggs is going out and, and drilling a route in public lands? No, they don't want to know that. They do not want to know that because if they know it, they've got a duty of care. They need to manage it. And right. if you need to manage it, the easiest thing to do, the best way to, to manage something if you don't really have the resources is to shut it, right. you know, to shut it down. So the, all, all of these things are running around in the bolter's head at any given point in time. It's just like we know we're, maybe we're doing something wrong, but everyone's always done it, but it's still, maybe it's not, you know, it's still something that's the, that maybe shouldn't be happening. And so th- there's a huge mental conflict going on. And of course, there'll people at the far end of the argument are the ones that would say, Oh well, I've taken umbrage at, at at this. What you've done here, and because bolts shouldn't shouldn't appear in in public land here, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna take matters right. into my own hands. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so it's a what you're saying is like you have a bit of an understanding of like what the problem is. I mean, if you don't agree with the racing the route, because well, while you were talking, you know, I've had these discussions um, on the run out even recently, but privately too, is that in the Blue Mountains, climbing has been accepted. But I think a lot of land managers still, even if they even if they have a practical idea of what bolting means, they have this image of climbing that's not current, you know, in that, okay, yeah, the climbers need to leave anchors here and there because they have to come down or you know when you talk about fixed anchors in a wilderness usually it conjures up this idea of like oh a rappel anchor off of the hulk or something like that and you know but the reality of it now is that yeah you can have you know a hundred foot or uh let's go australian a hundred meter long cliff that can have literally hundreds if not thousands of bolts put into it and i think that like Land managers are are right now, at least in the U.S., kind of like getting a little bit blindsided by the speed and the proliferation of bolts. And it's almost like we've gotten grandfathered in and we kind of lucked out because it like crept up on them. Because if if 30 years ago a, a wall had appeared with that many bolts in it, we'd be in a whole different position. But it didn't. One route appeared there. And then one other route appeared there. And then, you know, they started to accept a few things slowly. But it's it's pretty interesting that what you're saying is that anybody can just go out there and just like smack steel into this public land. Anybody. You know, there's no organization in charge of putting up roots. It's, it's literally Lee 
as a third year climber buying a drill can go out and just do whatever or feel obli- or feel the um the uh privilege or whatever to do whatever you want to do that's right and the if you speak to anybody that doesn't know climbing when they ask that question you mentioned it before like right. well how do you know this bolt is is safe like who who does this is like is this the local uh is this the council that you know is this the city that puts yeah. these bolts in yeah. you know like uh, you've got engineers out here and when you when you say no it's just anyone their eyes go like wide as saucers, like, oh, my God. And you're hanging on that with your life. And then the other side of it, of course, is that climbing's been amazingly good at self-policing. Right. So, when the when the guy with three years of experience goes, you know, and, and goes and drills the thing, the, the, the mentor guy that sees the drill dust and goes, what?! I don't know who's, you know, and, and asks around the circle and figures out very quickly and then arrives at your house, <laughs> which happened. Right, right. This, this happens. And, and, right. and climbing has been very good at, at that model of self-policing. Is that a particularly good argument in a legal setting? Uh, or in any kind of, uh, you know, governmental, For, yeah, right. uh, official kind of uh, back and forth? No, absolutely not. Has it been successful? Yeah, it has. But it wouldn't meet any kind of, um, you know, there wouldn't be a, a tick and flick checklist in a in, on a government form uh, that said that that was an okay way to, to operate. Right. And I feel like, too, I've, I've talked about my theory that because a lot, a lot of people lament that gym climbers going outside and getting in trouble and there needs to be more mentors and stuff. And I have this theory that the, the mentor system is overwhelmed. Um, you know, the, the old guard can't handle the influx of the new climbers. And I feel like in, a, in some ways that's the, you know, again, sport climbing has slowly proliferated all over the world in the last 25 years, as we've been talking in the history of you and I, you know, our climbing um, history, we've watched it. That like the old guy that's going to go to your house and, and tell you that you blew it on bolting, like he's too busy. Like he he would have to, you know, that could, would be his full-time job of like going and telling off young bolters because <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, absolutely, it's, it's yeah, yeah. too accepted and, to, and so I, I think we're reaching this point of where the self-regulation thing might break down in a way that we're also going to become self-conscious about um, about it. Or at least maybe we should be in a way. It may happen, and I, and maybe that's um you know, uh, cynical people would say that you know maybe we're getting you know the way I mentioned this bolt chopping episode right. that this is you know this is the logical end of the end of the the argument where ultimately people will take in a in a non you know climbing is a non policed system you know we we don't we don't thankfully God. We don't have to hit the cliff at rifle with our belay pass hanging off our harness. I'm sure some people do, but, you know, we don't have to do that. We don't have to get any kind of certification to go out and climb. People are always really amazed. Like, you know, I've done some some stuff in scuba and stuff like that. And that was, remember, scuba used to be the same way. You could just go out and do your thing. And there was a big um, and a radical shift in that sport where it went from a, a non-policed system to a let's call it a policed system, you know, a certified mm-hmm. system. Climbing still doesn't have, it doesn't have that. It doesn't mandate it um, to go into rifle. I don't have to show anybody my certification. You know, it's, it's, it's really amazing that it's still that way. And 
all of us, you know, probably 99% of us are really happy that it is that way. Um, but it's that sort of classic with great power comes great responsibility thing. Right. Um, you know, we're at a, we're at a something of a, cro- well, not a crossroads, but as you say, the, you know, we, we touched on it earlier, the, the proliferation of Boulder gyms, not, well, mostly Boulder gyms, but gyms in general, massive, and the number of people entering the sport and then the the percentage, and it is a small smaller percentage of people that are making the transition from gym to crag, there is some responsibility, I guess, for all of us in making sure that we try to safeguard climbing as we know it. Right. Um, and I'm not, I don't, I don't, I definitely don't have all of the answers. Right, um, right. Yeah, for sure. But I, I, I sense that, and I suppose I, I'm not sure about you, but like I, I probably take more time these days than I used to to have little words with people at the cliff um, that that are obviously new, um, and not in a you know just in a friendly way right, to right, try right. just to because as you say, it can't be left to one person. We all have to have some kind of um, you know small mentorship role in order to smooth the way a little mm-hmm, bit mm-hmm. and just steer people a little bit in the right direction. All right. So this conversation um, can't finish. And I don't know what your uh, experience in Arapiles is, the not the Arapiles, but Arapiles. When I was coming up and climbing, it was the focal point of what anybody outside of Australia knew about Australian climbing. And I, and once I got there, I realized it was the focal point of Australian climbing for a really long time, especially pre-sport uh, climbing. It was considered one of the greatest, and still is, one of the greatest crags in the world. I remember I was on the train, and this this young climber girl, and I say young, I was just slightly older than her. Both of us were young. But she told me flat out to my face it was the best crag in the world. Yeah, so, I mean... So much storied climbing going on there. What what's your experience with the Rapalies? Has that been some place that you you got into climbing at a place like a Raps? It was like my second ever road trip. Okay, so this is four years into my climbing. Like we packed up a Toyota Camry from Queensland, put four of us in it with all of our camping gear. I don't even know how it fit. Like there's four 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 people in this car. And we're driving for 24 hours, like, mm-hmm. to get down there um, and to, to see it for the first time. And it was, we'd read back then, now we look at forums and we look at Instagram, we get some ideas of what people are doing and you get psyched. Um, back then, it was all magazines. So, it was looking at the magazines of the time, reading every article. A lot of it's on Arapolis, mm-hmm. um, and and the stuff that was going on there. And we just like, yeah, we were just so mad keen to get there. So... Yeah, as like, I don't know, we would have been 21 or something like that heading down. And yeah, had had three weeks of just learning how, like I'd never I'd never dealt with double ropes before. So, Rapalis, because, and for people that haven't seen any photos of it, it's like, I don't know, it is it is a very weird looking cliff. Like yeah. it's kind of a, it doesn't look impressive no, no, from a distance. No, it's super underwhelming from a Underwhelming is, yeah. is the word for yeah. it. It basically looks like a pimple. Uh, on the horizon, and as you get closer, it just looks like a collection of pimples, really. It doesn't look very impressive at all until you actually, and it's even when you get there, it's not really until you start climbing on it right. and you realize that the, the beauty is not necessarily in the sweeping, um, expansive cliff. The beauty is in that little next baby's bum. You know, that's what we call them, the baby's bums. They're these little, um, you know, uh, ridges of rock that are dead smooth. 
that you might not be able to see over the top of slightly, but you, you know, you, your hand just piano fingers over the top looking for any kind of in-cut or any kind of um, maybe gear placement that might be between these little uh, uh, little collections of features. Um, and so it ends up being a really the, – the climbing style there is – unlike anything else in Australia and it's unlike anything else in most parts of the world. I haven't really been to anywhere else that has because it's quartzite, so it's for people that haven't climbed on on quartzite, it's the hardest sandstone that you could possibly get. So gear placements, even the tiny ones, so the you know, Rapley's became famous for the RP, the, you know, tiny brass um wire that, you know, can be one I think the zero is something like probably 1.5 millimeters across or something, and they can actually hold falls in that rock. It's um, it's incredible. But the we didn't do on that first trip. I remember, um, I remember top roping a 19, and so this would have been, you know, this is five years into my climb. I'm doing a 19. This is like a, I'm just going to say like 10B, something like that. And then thinking, all right, I think I've got this thing. I'm going to go for a, like, it's like UK tactics. It's it's head pointing. All right, I'm going to rack my gear and I'm only going to take just what I need up on this route. And it's Lemmington. It's on the organ pipes. And so I rack up the, the five nuts and I rack them in order because I've seen that in a magazine where some guy racked the gear in order. And I don't take anything else and I take my shirt off because, you know, it's for weight. And so I launch up this thing. <laughs> And I place my I place my gear and get onto the head wall and it's I've, I've done a, tra- a leftward traverse which is I, I can't I can't back climb someone could easily up and down climb this but I can't back climb it it's beyond my abilities I'm on the head wall and I take out the the, the last wire that I have that's going to protect the head wall that I've pre sussed out on on top rope and I and I try to place it in the crack and it won't go in it just will not go in it's a no I can even remember the 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 wire it's a number five HB brass offset and it will not go in. And so I just sit there on the head wall, just getting increasingly pumped. And um, I just thought I was going to die. And I, I just really distinctly remember just very sort of carefully, but forcefully just headbutt the the rock. I would like to try and calm myself down. I was just headbutting the rock, just, just not, not enough to throw me off the cliff, but just like, come on, man, come on, just get it together and just headbutted the rock. And, and I sort of, I couldn't couldn't climb down i couldn't get the gear in so there was only one option i had to climb up really pumped and um and yeah i just managed i did manage to top it out my blair was ready to run down the gully i don't know what that would have done and i sat on top of that thing and i was crying (laughs) and uh that that even to this day you know it's 20 years ago i still remember that just thinking are you idiot um there was so you know so many things you learn from doing that kind of stuff and but that's a like we have that's one of those visceral memories that will never leave me and yeah, so many, so many things like that, um, and so many other people's stories at Rapalies just kind of like that are the ones that, you know, fifty sport climbs now that all merge into one another, um, which I love doing. I love sport climbing. I'm known as a sport climber, but all those kind of weird formative trad um, misadventures are still the ones that are burned, you know, burned into your brain. You'll never forget them. Yeah, I remember feeling that, like, because you're. You know, where did you say that climb was? On in the organ pipes. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, but anywhere in Arapiles, unless you like decide to go into one of the like faraway zones, I mean, you're you're ten minutes from the campground. Yeah, people can point. see you. They like, oh, yeah, yeah. And you can see the campground. You can see your tent. And yet, I just I, I, that same thing of feeling like, you know, you would get so isolated up on these climbs, 
like you could have been you could have been thousands of miles from anywhere um just the feeling of like adventure on some of these wild uh trad climbs that are there and they're not crack climbs because or some of them are i mean there, there's plenty of cracks but it's sort of like i i always thought it was a little bit like el dorado canyon in the sense that you know, you're climbing on gear, but you're not necessarily just plugging away at some crack. You're looking for all these different other cracks aside from what you're climbing to place gear and stuff like that. Um, and the trad climbing there is serious, uh, cerebral, like gear placing trad climb. I mean, gear, gear placing trad climbing. It's really fun and really, uh, like you just said, like, uh, you, every climb, you just would learn so much. Yeah. It's the kind of opposite of splitters. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, you you don't necessarily know what you're going to encounter from the ground. You look right. up and you have some idea, but because of the way the rock is shaped and stuff, you really don't know until you get on it. And that's what makes, I guess that's what keeps people coming back because every route, every route is different. And, and what I have noticed in my travels is that, and I didn't realize at the time, was that in my opinion, it's the best... And look, a lot of people say it's the best trad climbing in the world, but just put that comment to the side. I, I believe that it's the best easy trad climbing in the world. So there are grade threes, which are, they be, they would be like five zero, that are 150 meters high, absorbing, interesting, intricate, amazing at the grade with a summit top out, and the, and you can get that at every grade. So the five zero, the five zero plus, the five one, the five. You can go around, and people do go around soloing these these easy routes, and mm-hmm. they're just absolutely incredible. Um, and for for you know five threes that you'll remember forever, um, that are true adventures that you know you can go up with a party of four and just have an amazing day on, um. That's almost what I remember Arapley's for, and a, and a, and a keen to, you know, if you ever want to, you know, take a, somebody that's new to climbing and you want to give them a, a bit of a trad experience that they'll never forget. Like Arapley's is a great place to do that, and it's still a very popular place, for example, for guiding and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. For that reason, it's just yeah. amazing in the easier end. Um, of course, you know, it was the home of the world's first, um, you know. AP plus 14A Wolfgang Gulick punks in the gym 85. Um, so it's known for its hard climbs. It's hard climbs there, but man, it's the easy climbs that keep people going back. That's wild. Yeah, the the I I was actually the first Australian ascent of that route happened while while I was there in '94. Uh, Stuart Why Wythe. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. He he was there in in attendance, and uh, that was that happened while we were while we were there. So that's a piece of history. Yeah, totally. Well, and it was also like I said, um, Garth Miller and Saxon John showed up for the first time to to Rapalies. Yeah. Um, and those guys actually, I was like a dyed in the wool tradster, right? I mean, sport climbing kind of didn't exist many places, and that was one of the few places I'd ever been that had pure bolted routes and. The fact that these guys were climbing this hard, that was also new to me, just even associating with these people. And But it was funny because we had this sort of camp, um, like Sig Garth was there, Saxon was there in our camp. And there was like, it was kind of cool because there was like this uh, this mutual respect that we all had for one another because those guys didn't know shit about trad climbing. And... Just like we would march up to watch, you know, one of those guys try, um, you know, march up to watch those guys try some hard 513 at that time. Yep. They would come up 
and watch me like do some 5'11 trad climb. Yeah. You know, and take big giant wingers onto nuts. They couldn't believe it. You know, they just couldn't believe that I would do something like that. So it was a pretty cool time of this like mix between between these climbers that, and, and that we were all just like camped together and hanging out in the gums, you know. That campground is definitely like it's the Australian version. If there was an Australian version of Camp 4, in, in Yosemite, like that's that's oh our, for sure that is our camp for. There is no other place right. like the the pines and 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 the gums, the campsite at Arapiles. That's our spirit. And for a lot of people, they'd say that you know that's their spiritual home. You know that's where they feel most uh, most at peace. Right, um, is in that campsite. And I think a lot of people, you know, um, maybe from a slightly earlier era, you know, that were climbing and spending a lot of their uh, a lot of their twenties, maybe in. Uh, in Yosemite would say the same about about Camp 4. Sure. It's definitely got a spirit to it. Yeah, and the stories, like the endless amount of stories. And yeah. even from the U.S., you know, it's like Henry Barber went there and then John Sherman had that whole era there. And you, we have these, you know, these posters from him on his flip-flops on in, in uh, Lord of the Rings. and Slugging all one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, all that stuff also was in, in my head as well at the time. The other funny thing, and, and I I don't know if I ever told this story on the podcast, but um, we we took a trip up to the Taipan Wall up in the Grampians or down in the Grand, however it is geo- geographically. Yeah. Anyway, we went there for the day. Very little that I could climb there at the time. I'm sure there still isn't. Um, I'm I'm a better climber, but the routes haven't gotten any easier. But um, I, I got up on a route. I, w- I want to say it was called Mister Joshua. Does that fantastic? Sound right? Yep. Okay. One of the world's finest twelve Bs. Okay. We just have to uh, put it out there. So twelve B, serious business for a young Kalu strad climber. Um, there is gear on it actually. It's it's a lot of gear. Yeah, because I remember taking it's only a handful of bolts, huge whippers onto um like a number three friend, absolutely stuffed into a slot somewhere. Yeah. So. Not not a sport climber, but not only not a sport climber, but pure as I could be trad climber. So not you don't take onto gear. The word take was not in my vocabulary. You climbed until you fell off, kind of a thing. So I'm I'm like taking the I'm trying to get up to some bolt and I remember it being on like kind of a there's a lot of these sort of they're not really tufas, they're kind of pillars. Like you kind of are grabbing on either side of Yeah, we call them turrets. Okay, sometimes. turrets. Okay. Yeah. And, I, and I'm like getting closer and closer to this bolt, but falling. So finally, I managed to like shimmy up to yeah. quite a ways out from my piece. I mean, at least 20 feet out from my piece. And I'm like staring at the bolt, literally like in front of my face. And I managed to get the draw on it, but I, because I'm on one of these turrets, like, yeah, you're really, holding, you you're, can't let you're go. You're cross you, pressure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. So I'm staring at it and I start to look over my shoulder and like give my Belair a warning that I'm about to take a gigantic whipper. Um, And this cat, uh, there's a lot of Dave Joneses in Australian climbing. Uh, They called him Feral Dave. Um, There maybe is a lot of Feral Daves as well, but early really good sport climber. I'm I'm sure you know who he is, which Dave Jones this was. He's over on Serpentine, I want to say, or a route not far from me. Yeah hanging on the bolt like a sport climber should and he looks over at me and he goes grab the draw mate and like it had never occurred to me that you would do something like that and i like i like looked over at him and heard him and i just like both hands just fucking grabbed that draw like for all i was worth and like pulled the rope up and clipped in and took and i and i to this day i joke but it was kind of true like a sport climber was born that day. 
because sure. like the idea of grabbing the draw to keep myself from falling that that cell in my brain had never like was never was born that day the one cell that said grab the draw because he didn't exist before that moment so oh, he's yeah. dave jones has got a lot to answer exactly for. yeah the, the enormous cast became a sport climber i probably wouldn't even be climbing if i hadn't been a, become a sport climber though so oh man yeah so that, that was a amazing. big trip for me like all like learning about all this other stuff and and ironically i'm at a trip at rapley's where i'm like learning about sport climbing and about trying routes over and over again that hadn't occurred to me either yeah, I mean it's that that's crazy, but that was the time. Yeah, you were yeah. there at the time. Yeah, and if you, I mean, I would try roots again, but you you would try them like next year when you thought you were stronger and ready, not like tomorrow, not like the next day and the next day and the next day. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't even know when that concept. Yeah, just look at, thinking back on my history, I wouldn't even have a clue as to when that uh, that concept sort of came in. I guess it was probably when you bolted something that was. The first time you bolted something that was genuinely too hard. Yeah, right. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but so. it was probably around the same time. Yeah, just a great place. And and I just wanted to get to it in our conversation because, again, it is the cornerstone, I think, of Australian climbing, at least modern technical climbing. When I say modern technical climbing, I'm talking about like in the last 50 years after just like shoulder belays and shit like that. Um, that's, I mean, like where so much of it went down was in Arapiles. Yeah, and like the yeah the de- I mean you've had people talk uh, on the podcast about the de- the development and there was so much I mean like even with the you know the the last you know host of movies that have come out for example you know like we had Valley Uprising which celebrated that time uh, in the states but then really there was a whole you know and that what what we're talking about is sort of sixties and then you know importantly the seventies was that era and and we we look at that era a lot. And what we never look at really is is or gloss over is really the the eighties. And for me, as as someone that came in in mid nineties, I was looking back at the stuff that was happening from kind of eighty five, eighty six, up to mid nineties when I started. That was the that's the era that I'm most interested in. And the stuff that happened in the eighties was happening at well, it was it was the birth of sport climbing. So it was right. happening in Smith. Um, it was happening in Arapiles, you know that w- that was the that was where the best climbers in the world were going at that time. It was in the top five, right? You know, and I, I find that you know, and Bukes in these areas, like I- I'm fascinated about that period and what was going on then, because that's when I was most, you know, you're always most keen when you hook onto something, you know, the fir- when you're learning, you're in that learning phase, first couple of years of climbing, when you're just absorbing everything. That's all the stuff that I was looking at, and and I'm always. I'm always saddened when I see that stuff glossed over and, and people not willing to talk about that. And that's changing now. You know, we've got um, guys that are chronicling that stuff, which is really good to see. So, I'm, I'm psyched about that. Well, speaking of Valley Uprising, like, and I don't know if there's there's archival footage the way those guys rustled that stuff up for, for that movie. Although they did a lot of the animation. But, I mean, in, I think an amazing similar film could be done about Arapiles. Yeah, that like, time. I just remember the stories... You know, just being, you know, it was just passed around these stories of, of, uh, you know, Chris Peisker. Is that right? Peisker? Yep. You know, in that era of, and, and Kim Carrigan and, and these guys, uh, and Louise Shepard, you know, speaking of not just guys, but, um, and again, like 
the same way it happened everywhere of like testing the water of how these methods would work to get these harder roots done and, you know, breaking little ethical things here and there to try to get the standards to go up. And I, I think it's an amazing place. And there's so much color, so much color in the, what those guys were doing in, in that whole era. Even the last reported case in Australia of, of scurvy from, you know, Chris Shepard living in, in Oh right, Chris Shepherd. Yeah, in, in squalor in, in the in the pines and like not someone had to I don't know, someone had to like make force feed him an orange or something. It was the last recorded he got scurvy. <laughs> like that's that's amazing. We can, we can celebrate that. It was now. like a hundred years to the previous case. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. On some ship. Yeah, totally. <laughs> He's that's you know awesome. Yeah, fantastic. All right, so what's uh what's your what's your gig now in terms of climbing and and uh your associate we did a little bit of your history but yeah you're in yeah. the blue mountains in the yeah i moved to the mountains um and in australia yeah for, in in the climbing parlance of australia it's just people just call it the mountains and you know which mountains they're talking about right. it's the it's it's the blue mountains yeah the valley we yeah know which valley they're talking about yeah exactly so yeah i moved to the mountains four four years ago now after doing the i basically felt like Queensland was a great place to be a climber. I still think, you know, living in Brisbane, we had, it is one of the cities in the world that probably has the biggest variety of of climbing within, say, an hour and a half of the city, of, of any city, um, because we had, because it's all volcanic rock there, the volcanic rock would form really differently. And so, we would have all these different kinds of trachytes and rhyolites, and you'd have every, everything from slab to, to vertical to massive knee bar caves all within an hour and a half of the city so it was a really good place to develop as a climber but after 20 years and doing everything i kind of felt that i could do i thought oh it's it's time to it's time to just close that chapter and open the new one blue mountains has six and a half thousand roots i want to go and live there and at 42 or at that time 38 i'm thinking ah you know this is the place where i can start to do half days Climbing was always like a full day. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a big thing. Like depending on where you live and um, you know, and where the climbing is, you're making lifestyle decisions around is climbing uh is it a is it a whole weekend exit? Like if for example, um, and I'm always fascinated by this, like where people live. Melbourne, if you're a Melbourne climber, you have the car packed on Friday, you go to work, and you either go from work or you come via home, but really you're on the way to the Grampians. And, and and that's it. And then you're at the Grampians all weekend and you hang out with the guys in the campsite that you see every every weekend. Um, and it's Sunday at some time, you know, it's just gone dark. You're driving home and you're going to rock up at work on Monday completely bleary-eyed and trying to recover from this weekend. And you do that for 10 years. Um, and I know people that have done that. And so that's a decision if you, if you live in Melbourne. So there was always the, um, oh, if we're going to move, where are we going to move to? And for us, it was like, ah. Oh, wouldn't it be amazing to live in a place where you can actually get out and climb for if you want to go out for a couple of hours and then come back you can do that so mm-hmm. you're you just compress the climbing time and you can do other things cuz i love climbing i also love other things some other things not many other things but you know <laughs> it's mostly climbing but i like to you know from time to time go and get a coffee and have a nice meal and talk to people and go around to people's houses and socialize and do that kind of thing as well so yeah it was for us it was like a it was a bit of a no-brainer that the Blue Mountains, a place we we sort of holidayed at every year for the previous, you know, 15 years or something, was going to be a place that if work, if we could make work work, 
And that's what, you know, that's the challenge in a lot of these cool climber towns. How do you make work work where everyone wants to be there um, and jobs are limited? These are small towns. If we could live there, if work could work, that'd be the place to go. We always dreamed about it. So it was cool to make it happen. Cool. Yeah. Right on. And now you're developing there. Absolutely. While, while listening to the Enormicast. So like I, when I did my first lot of bolting in the mountains, I was doing it at night because I'm doing it after work. So I would go out. And it was, it was winter. It was like, you know, it's close to freezing and I just, I'd have all my kid and I'd be wrapping in and, um, and I just put the back, like, cause I, I, I didn't start listening to the enormous cast at episode one. I, I came in, you were probably at 60 or 70 deep in these things. And I'm like, oh, this is perfect. Like, this is just going to be on I can start at number one and I can work my way through. And I absolutely did. I just worked through the back catalog until I got up to date. So, like, you are a, you are a, even though you don't know it, you're a constant companion when I'm out there Aww. doing things. And when you talk about <laughs> develop, it's funny when you're actually talking to other people that are developing and doing things. And it's like, and I'm hanging on a cliff or hanging on a sky hook, uh, you know, trying to pull myself in. And I'm, I feel like I'm part of the conversation. And um, you just don't feel like you're so alone on the rope when there's when there's just this nice. You know, like you were in a room full of mates having a conversation about climbing. It's always, that's what I really, even more so than driving, when I'm by myself on a rope, I love listening to uh, to podcasts. Well, cool. I, thanks for coming on. Um, you got in touch with me and I don't think, I have never had an Australian on the podcast. I don't think. I mean, I, I forget about them, but you've listened to them all. I don't think I have. I might be the first one. And yeah, if if no, I am, I hope, uh, I hope I've done my... Uh, on my country program. well i'll find out about it that's yeah, for sure for, for sure but yeah. it's it's just you know the face-to-face thing's always been tricky and it's particularly tricky with australians because i don't get there they don't come here a lot it's an expensive trip it's a long trip yeah um so i appreciate you coming on the show and at least uh, attempting to represent um an entire continent of <laughs> climbers um even if it is a small population um i appreciate it well thanks for having me and i look forward to seeing um more of your listeners out in Oz and around the cliffs. And yeah, I mean, just remember it's, 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 it's relatively easy to come down now. You just got to get to, I'm told the best way to do it is don't, don't book direct, go to LA. So find the flight to LA and then just get the, just jump across from LA, like book from LA. It's like 800 bucks at the moment. It's cheap. Really? Yeah. It's doable. Like really doable. So, um, uh, killing me. Come, yeah. Come, come down. We love to see you. No, you have to go. If you're a climber, you know, a buddy of mine told me, yeah, if you if you if you don't like climbing in Squamish, you're not a climber. And uh and I feel that way about Australia. Like you if you don't like climbing there, then you're in the wrong sport because it's everything great about rock climbing all wrapped up in these cliffs that are there. It's really a great place to go climbing. Yeah, and we do good breakfast. <laughs> Smashed avo on toast. Yeah. <laughs> let me finish i'm a person brett's a person yeah you're a person that person over there is a person and each person deserves to be treated like a person. It's a great speech. Too bad New Zealanders are a bunch of cocky a-holes descended from criminals and retarded monkeys. 
Are you thinking of Australians? Yeah, that's Australians. That's Australians. No, 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 New Zealanders. They throw another shrimp on the barbie, ride around in your kangaroos all day. No, 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 no that's Australians. That's, you're thinking of Australians. That's not us. I've totally confused you with Australians. I, I feel terrible. Oh just, no! We, oh no! Your it, accents are just kind of similar. Our accents are completely different. They're like, "Where's the car?" And we're like, "Where's the car?"